we were just thinking, well, what are we going to do? Um, and abortion was an option, so we went, I thought we were going to talk to the people about it and, and get some information. Naively, if I'd walked into a pregnancy resource center, which they have now, which they didn't have then, we would have gotten different options and there might have been a different story. Probably would have been, but we walked into an abortion clinic and as a mother, anytime I took my kids to the doctor, I went back to the back with them. And so I said, can I go back with her? And she says, no, just her alone. And took her off and I sat down and um, waited in the waiting room, picked up a magazine and looked and read and wondered and she's not coming back. Is she coming? Should I go up and talk to them? And I was such a wimp that uh, not the mama bear I'd want to be, but I, I just sat there and stewed. And um, eventually it was getting longer and longer, and I said, well, you may as well just relax because it's getting done. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The NoCast. I'm Corey. And I'm Banning. And we are coming to you from a small church in a small town, Faber, California, in the basement. <laughs> Way down south. <laughs> the point of this podcast, if you don't already know, is to sit down and talk with people, get to know their life, um, and to get to know them better um, without the masks, without the veils, to get to know the true story of people's life so that we can better understand them. And so that's what we did today with our very first guest of Miriam Kurt. Um, we talked about how she was a high school dropout. We talked about how she was on the cutting edge of computer technology. Uh, we talked about um, the, the deep pains of uh, abortion um, and failed marriages and new marriages and, and um, you know, resurrections from those tragedies. Um, what are your thoughts on it, Danny? I just, what a great, what a great guest for our first episode. I think you're going to find very quickly sort of the point of why we're doing this when you hear Miriam's story. She is, she's profound. I don't know what else to say. She's, she's profound. And I think just to say a little bit more than we normally would say in an intro, we want to get to know people in a way that we don't usually get the chance to. I mean, right now we're, we're filled with, we're in a world filled with people and around us all the time. We are constantly judging. We're constantly passing them by without taking a, th a second to think what their experience is. But this podcast is about taking a moment to sit down and actually ask the question of what is this person's story? What has their experience been like? And then how can I learn and interact with that? And this has been the perfect first episode guest to do that with. Perfect first episode. I couldn't think of any of our other interviewees that um, I would rather have being first. Um, such a great story of a person that you wouldn't normally, uh, think has experienced these things never guess. never guess and that's the whole point to uh to get to know miriam a little better why don't you come join us well guys here's our guest today miriam kirk she's an awesome rad lady um you never guess it she's a high school dropout and she's born before the civil war as her kids like to say <laughs> she's young and youthful miriam welcome thank you Nice to be here. Well, let's start first with born on a farm in Renfro, Pennsylvania. Renfro. Renfro, excuse yes. me. Yes. Uh, born on, I don't remember it, actually, but <laughs> I remember growing up there, and it was just a beautiful place to grow up, just uh, peaceful. And um, we had a lot of chores to do. It was a chicken farm. We, we uh, uh, sold eggs and chickens to raise money. We grew the corn and oats and um, f you know t and and wheat to feed the chickens. Uh, everything was you know vertically integrated. Uh, we had chores to do. I cleaned out chicken coops. I gathered eggs. I did, but we learned responsibility. But uh, one of the good things about it was that I saw my parents at work. Or a lot of kids, you know, mom and dad go off to work, and you don't have a real a real idea of what they do. So I saw my folks work. I learned how to drive a car from watching my dad drive a tractor. Interesting. Right. You don't turn the wheels when you're sitting still. You start moving and turn the wheels. 
you don't make marks on your driveway because <laughs> see, see, simple things like that. I learned how to wield a shovel just watching my dad work. So, um, and my mother, my goodness, she cooked pies for threshers and, and uh, harvesters and um, wonderful baker. And I can remember um, one of the earliest jobs I had standing on a chair was putting the salt into the canning jars. You measured out your little piece of salt to put in before she put in their tomatoes to can. I feel like we miss out on pie culture out like real, like real pie real culture. pie culture I, i've always my grandma my sweet grandma who lives in a small town in arizona they have a canning season and pie season and it's pretty funny because that's like the whole family comes together in cans um they come together and they cook pies but out here it's like if i want a pie i'm going to major market i'm going to the store and i get if i want to splurge pie. i'm going to julian <laughs> yeah i can't go steal some sweet neighbor's pie off her window seal because it's cooling we don't get that kind of mischief anymore, you know? We have yeah. to go buy our pies. You buy your pie. Well, we don't really. Last weekend, my grandson, granddaughter, granddaughter-in-law, three kids came to visit, brought all the food and cooked everything for the weekend, but they brought a homemade pie. Wow. So you can, still can make homemade pies. That's unheard of. Good for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Wow. So did you learn to drive a tractor before you drove a car? Um, actually, yes. Yes, I did. What was that? What was that? Beth was, she learned to shoot a rifle before she, I don't know, ate solid food. She was, I can't remember how young she was when she like, that's amazing. Growing out on a farm in, in rural areas, it's, it's a pretty amazing life cycle for sure. So what kind of child were you, Miriam? Tell us about what you were like. Um, I think I was a good child. I think I, I was taught to listen to my mother and, and, and to obey her and, uh, and my dad. Mostly my mom, though. She was the, the rule keeper. Dad was the more fun-loving one. Uh, she was loving, too, but he, he was more funny. Your relationship with your, with your mother, she was the disciplinarian. Um, what did that lead you to, to see her as? Did you look up to her a lot? Did you try to get her approval? Like, what, was, what was that relationship? I did very much try to get her approval. Um, I'll tell you a story about why I wanted her approval so much. Um, I was the third of three girls, and when I was three and a half, we had a younger brother. And um, I remember the first day that we got to see that little baby sitting on her lap, and um, she was sitting on a rocking chair that, that uh, she had rocked me on many, many times because they told me that I had pneumonia three times before I was three, so I was kind of sickly. And um, she, I, I just remember so many hours in that chair, hearing that squeaky chair rocking and her with her warm arms around me. And so when um, we were watching this little baby, which we were so excited to have, I started to climb up onto her lap where I had always felt, felt such joy. And she pushed me down, not in a mean way, but just, you know, just as this is his place now. And in my little three-and-a-half-year-old mind, I got it. I understood. Um, I didn't, I wasn't angry with my mother. I wasn't angry with my little brother. But I was sad because I'd lost my prized spot. So from that point on, I um, unconsciously just uh, determined to get her approval. And mainly it was in school because she had been a school teacher and she taught us um, good values of studying. Uh, if we came to her with a spelling test to be reviewed and we hadn't practiced enough, she sent us back to the books. Uh, she'd make up test questions for geography, history, whatever, but if we weren't answering enough questions, back to the books. So I worked really hard to be um, a good student, and I was. It was easy. I have a brain, but, <laughs> but I also uh, worked hard to be uh, oh, a, a great test taker. Let me tell you, maybe I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. I just knew how to take tests, <laughs> but that was to get mom's approval. That's remarkable that you can trace. I think, I mean, I don't want to be held accountable as like commenting on like, so, like socialization and psychology too much, but I think getting older, part of that is figuring out a lot of the things that you battle from those like formative years. And it's pretty remarkable that you can trace that desire to please your mom back to almost like that one incident. And I'm sure it's not just that one incident, but 
those little things can really set the course of your life. They can really, they can really affect like, yeah, the direction that your ship sails. And so that's pretty amazing that you're that self-aware. That's really, that's really a cool thing. Well, it became, as, as time went on, I realized that that was my identity was just uh, being able to approve, uh, get my mother's approval. Um, but I often have thought that was a small incident and it was huge in the way it turned my life around. And I think about kids who are subject to really cruel things, tough things, and how, how much that affects their lives. We, we, and as a parent, I'm sure I did some of the same things. We, um, we're busy with our lives, we're doing what we do, and we offhanded remark, what kind of a scar does that leave on someone? Or what kind of a motivation was it? You know, maybe it wasn't a scar for me. Maybe it was motivation. Is that like your earliest memory? Is is that moment oh, with your mom? My earliest memory. Oh no, uh, my earliest memory is, and I think this was because because I was sick. I can remember one spring day. We had a. This was in Pennsylvania, so it was you know spring was wonderful after winters, and I can remember her whole carrying me, and setting me down by the kitchen door where the sun was shining in and they says we can sit Mimi here where she can enjoy the sunshine and I was not I wasn't big that's my first memory it was like coming from the dark into the light it's amazing I don't know that I remember anything <laughs> from before I was oh, even man. four years old like, my first memory is is I remember and it's funny because a memory that old it's almost like you fade in and out but I remember going to my mom taking me to Toys R Us and getting a pooch patrol. I don't know why I remember that, but I remember, I, I don't even remember the whole thing. I just remember like, fade out, fade in, Toys R Us, fade out, fade in, I'm down an aisle, fade out, fade in, pooch patrol. And then my mom, I've ha I had that thing for a long, long time, but that was my earliest memory. My first memory was my, my four-year-old birthday party, sitting at like a, <laughs> a picnic table on someone's backyard, opening up like a Lego present. That's my first memory. <laughs> Hey, we had Lego presents. That's it's, risky. It's all toys with us. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, and really like when you're that young, birthday parties are, it's really free babysitting. It's like, you know, how can we get all of our friends to come together and give the kids something to do so they're busy so we can all hang out. I'm going to a lot of like one and two year old birthday parties these days. So I'm learning about what birthday parties really are about. It's a lot of fun. That's amazing, Miriam. You have a, you have a amazing memory. You have a better memory than I do. That's for sure. I can remember a lot. I think a, a lot of it was because we were on the farm. We didn't have a lot of distractions. You could absorb things that were going on around you. I can't remember what I did this morning already, you know, because we're doing too many things. Plus the mind is starting to go. But uh, I have, am blessed with some beautiful memories of my childhood. So speaking of that, on the farm, and you're, you sound like you're an extremely hardworking family. What, what did you guys do for, for fun? What was, how did you blow off some steam after those long hours out raising chickens? Oh, I don't know. My, my, as far as my mom and dad went, they went, they went to bed exhausted. My mother was the hardest working woman I ever met in my life. Uh, it's either working in the kitchen, cooking, uh, dressing chickens, gathering eggs, washing eggs, uh, constant work. But as a family, we, well, we didn't have TV early on. Uh, later on Sunday evening, we always watched Lassie. That was a family thing to do together. Um, but as far, we didn't travel, we didn't go camping. My mother and dad never took a vacation the whole time I was growing up. Not until high school. Do you vacation? Did, did, does that, did that affect your ability to vacation in your adult years? That's an interesting question because we're currently, my husband and I are not vacationing. Oh, wait, yeah, no, no I'll take that back. We do some vacationing, but uh, it's not something that I'm you know, eager to do. I don't feel the need to do it. Let's put it that way. I feel like, cause I feel like vacation, like vacation is like a culture. So we didn't make, we had like one family vacation. We tried to like Wyoming when I was a kid and it was like a failure. And so we, I kind of grew up in my, and Brittany, my wife vacations all the time. And so for me, learning how to go on vacations actually took a bit of time because we didn't really do that much because my parents were extremely hard workers. So well, I let me back wondered. up a little bit on that one yeah. because in, I've been married twice. My first marriage was uh, all four of my kids and my first husband really did like to go on vacations. 
but he worked hard all the time. But his basically his whole goal every, all year was where are we going to go on vacation, and he would dream up these wonderful vacations. And the kids loved that. You know, we had one bathroom for six people, but we took a vacation every year. So that was more important than having <laughs> even those 365 days a year you're using one bathroom. Um, but he made great vacations for the kids. Just driving around, it was uh, uh, road trips. So what was the best vacation from that? In those years, uh, I, we took one trip, and I can't remember exactly what the route was, but I can remember uh, we went to some national parks, and we came in through probably Needles, and there was a thunderstorm that was just rollicking all over the place. Uh, and lightning, and of course, we don't get much of that here. And our kids love that. They just love those thunderstorms. And one of the kids, <laughs> I have to tell you, they were in the back of a truck, unpinned. <laughs> good old days. No this, is, this is in the good old days. We threw a mattress in the back of the truck. My husband built a shell over top of it. And we took a, a nylon tube and put it between the cab and the back. So... Hubby and I had peace and quiet, and the kids were all rolling around all over the back. But somebody hammered on the window and said, and picked up the tube and said, this is the best vacation we ever have. Our friends won't even believe it. So it was just uh, all that exciting, you know, thunder and lightning. It was a culmination of that great trip. So the nylon tube was for communication? Yes. <laughs> so it had a tube between the cab, the, have, the homemade we, cab. Was this truck horse drawn or what's the deal here? No, it was a, it was a decent truck. <laughs> nice. That's that is awesome. So much adventure. It's, it's great. So you're a good student, you're in high school, working hard, getting good grades. And then life happens. <laughs> life happens. It's interesting that you're asking about this because right now I'm working on a shame teaching for deeper still next weekend. And we're, I'm going right over this thing because here I was. I was an honor student. I was playing the organ in church. I was um, playing the piano for our choirs at school. And, but I also had a boyfriend. And I was sneaking around having sex with him. And the uh, fall of my senior year, at 16, I was pregnant. And so then... Um, there came the shame, <laughs> and I won't deal with that, but that was, that's, shame, shame is a huge thing because guilt is guilt, and guilt is real, and guilt's a fact. But shame is something we put on, and we let uh, Satan shroud us in that, too. But, um, so then I, I had to face, well, what's going to happen here? And um, my dad and I went to the high school and, and uh, dropped me out of school, walked past the auditorium, and the concert choir is singing the alma mater and I'm thinking I am never going to get to go to college you know I'm done I've just really messed up my life so uh, got married uh, really enjoyed my kids we had four by the time I was 21 so um, <laughs> one a year <laughs> <laughs> we skipped a year we got a TV <laughs> That's why I'm waiting so long to have kids so I can buy a good TV. Yeah, that's the reason. <laughs> but, um, you know, I love my kids. If I hadn't done it that way, I wouldn't have the four kids that I have. I would maybe had four different kids, maybe wouldn't have. Who knows? I can't go down that road. Um, <clears throat> and I was able to go back to school later. When I was 29, I went back to school. So uh, I caught up. I didn't go as far as I would have liked to have gone. But, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, bold and say... Something I think sometimes God closes some doors for some good reasons, and I I don't I, I don't profess to understand how this works. But at the time that I went back to school at 29, I was studying data processing with uh, a bunch of guys who had been who were Vietnam vets, so they were there on their uh, what do you call it the, the GI Bill the GI Bill right. So uh, and we got to be friends because we were working on these programs together, struggling. And so then uh, some of us decided we'd have some, you know, we'd meet together and have a party. Well, they were drinking, and Don, my husband, and I just never really had much alcohol in the house because we couldn't afford it. So 
I started going to these parties and I found out I liked the taste of that stuff. And, and um, to the point where finally my husband says, uh, it's bring your own bottle, we're taking Coke. I was so mad at him because I, I want to go and you know, have, a, a, have some fun. And uh, actually that one turned out to be the most fun because everybody else was buzzed and I was there watching how silly they were. But what my point is, I don't know, given what happened to me when I got the taste of alcohol, had I gone off to college when I had not good boundaries, who knows where I might have turned up? Because my brother's an alcohol, uh, was an alcoholic. So, you know, we, we can second guess, uh, we can, uh, we can um, wonder why we, you know, what would have happened, but um, it is what it is, and we just enjoy what we had and, and uh, keep going. Is that something that runs in your family? Were your parents no. drinkers? No, no, they, they, they never had alcohol, I, I, except one time, <laughs> no, they, my, my dad used to make cider, and once in a while the cider would get a little hard, <laughs> <laughs> and he'd have a little sip of that, but no, just the, that wasn't something we did. Nowadays, you can go buy alcohol, like, like cheap beer, like a 40 of beer is like cheaper than like electrolyte and like filled water. And it seems like the older generation's interaction with alcohol as a part of culture, there was, there was that separation more. It was like, well, I didn't try alcohol till I was like, well, like, you know, I mean, how old was I like 11? You know what I mean? <laughs> like it was just, it was just, it's just here all the time. And so I feel like a lot of my friends, like, there are churches nowadays that serve alcohol after service. You know I mean? There's, there's, it's like more a part of culture, but it feels like for the early, um, like earlier generations, alcohol was kind of that, like it, there was a bigger gap between there was, would you agree with that? Oh, I would totally, uh, my experience was with the gasoline can. What? From, Moonshine. <laughs> what is it? 55-gallon 50, drum. I'm not drinking it. The 55-gallon drum that they used to fill the tractor with, gasoline. All you just take the lid off and just... Just take a good deep breath. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not good. Miriam, that explains a lot. So. <laughs> and you were still smart after all that. Yeah. It just wow. fried my brain a little bit. I want to go back to the moment when you found out that you were pregnant. You know, you, you talked a lot early on about how important your relationship was with your mom mm -hmm. and how that relationship really has been a big part of how you were formed and how you've, how you've kind of lived your life. What was her reaction to your pregnancy and how did that impact you? I know she had, she knew what was going on. She knew I was sneaking around because we had had long conversations about it. So I don't think it was, a, I know it wasn't a surprise to her. Um, she had actually, threatened to ship me off someplace, not, not because I was pregnant, but before that, because I, she, she was just not getting control of me. But she, they were both gracious. But you know, it's interesting, the answer to it was to get married. That was just what was done. Abortion was never even a subject. That wasn't, in that era, it wasn't, I'm sure it was done, but it was just not anything that we thought of. That's it. So you, was it more common for, because nowadays, like me and my wife, we're 30, we're in our mid thirties and we're looking to have kids now. I have friends that had kids. I mean, my mom had me when she was 21. I feel like the further back you go, the more common it was to be pregnant in, in those years, younger. Yes. So for you and back in that time was getting pregnant in high school. I'm sure like you mentioned that it was, it was difficult, but was it as difficult back then, or was it a little bit more socially normalized? Oh, it, it wasn't normalized. It was, it was, and that's part of my shame speech, is this uh, shame that I carried from that because um, it just wasn't done. I didn't feel like anybody had said anything to me about it that would, would ostracize me, but I just felt it. It just was, you just don't do that. Where now I think the kids, you know, you can find an, a different answer. You can, you can uh, uh, go back to school 
it, it's it's not at the end of your college career. Was that shame with your parents, or was it more shame with your other classmates? My my belief of what happened was it was not anything anybody did. When I look back at each step, the the parents, my my husband's mother, the principal, the pastor who married us, my classmates, it was not anything they did. It was what I accepted. Guilt is a fact. Guilt is real. We did something wrong. We're guilty. We can be forgiven for that. But shame is something you put on yourself. And I think the evil one really loves to do that. He loves to get us shrouded in that, that shame because then we can't function the way that, that God wants us to. We can't be the, the people that he wants us to be because we carry that shame. So, so that, did that shame that you took on, did that stop you from keeping in touch with all your classmates? Did you, did you stay away from them and lose all your friends? I did because, uh, and, and that was my part. When I, one of my friends gave me a um, bridal shower, she and her mother, and here were these girls that I had grown up with, and they're laughing and they're doing these silly party things that you do at showers, and I was sitting there just smothered in shame and guilt detached from what was going on and I knew I was and I was knew I should be happy and I knew I should be part of the party because it was for me but I was just totally covered with guilt and shame after that each time I would go to the grocery store or just I dreaded meeting any of my friends they didn't do it to me I did it to me I love that guilt is a fact but shame is a choice I think that's like very very intelligent and very well put so after I mean, your life at this point, so you're, you're 21 with four children. <laughs> You've dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. You're in your first marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, when did your first marriage end? And when did you kind of begin your new career path in computer programming? I have to laugh at the choice I made. I grew up on the farm. I, was, I, was, uh, I had <clears throat> horticulture in my blood. I loved that. I always had a garden. And... That was one of the things I was thinking about going towards. But I also had taken some aptitude tests and showed some uh, ability with computer programming, which was getting was kind of new at that time. And the thing that tipped me over to being to to studying data processing was that I, I kept seeing this ad for this computer these computer classes, and there was this, this real chick gal standing there holding a tape drive. I don't know if you know what a tape drive is. <laughs> no but, idea. <laughs> well, that's the way we used to do it in the old days. But um, she just looked so put together and stuff. I said, I think I'll do this one. And so that's, that was a tipping point. But I enjoyed it. I, I, I enjoyed programming. And uh, that's, that's actually how I met my second husband. And so as I had been going back to school and fulfilling what I had been really, you know, what I had grown up to be, my husband and I were kind of growing apart in interests. Uh, we weren't going to church. There wasn't anybody saying, and we were out here, families all back in the East, and just nobody, and he was troubled. I just have to, you know, he, he was troubled. So um, my new boss was treating me like I had a brain, and that's what I needed to be treated like I had a brain. And... Um, so um, I'll admit that um, I strayed again um, and uh, eventually got divorced and married my boss. And how's that marriage going? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's really going well. It's had its ups and, ups and downs. Uh, he took on four kids and they took on a stepdad that was a nerd, which wasn't what they thought they'd like to have. They wanted a, my one daughter thought she was going to get a jock for a, because she loves sports. And here's this nerd that's... Um, no, it's going really well. You know, every marriage has trials and ups and downs and good days and bad days. And uh, I'm trying to think what Gaither says. I never stopped loving you, but there were certain days I didn't like you much. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of, kind of the way it's been. But uh, he is a dear. Um, he's been good to our family, uh, been able to support our ministry of Deeper Still and got us a property to be able to have that ministry and... But I'm I'm interested to know what computer programming actually entailed oh, back in those days. What you, did it look like? We we did ones and zeros, punch cards and, and all punch that. Punch cards, punch cards, and you you know one is on and one uh, zeros off. 
That's how programming is. That's the very basics of it. When I did machine language, I wouldn't even know where to go. I wouldn't even know, know where to go with a macro program these days. But uh, it, it was way back at the beginning. How was that to be a woman in the computer field back in those days? Was that a no, norm or? No, it, it wasn't an issue. No, it wasn't an issue because women were getting into that. Seems to be like the opposite nowadays. Like it, or it seems like today we're trying to get back to that where for the longest time it had been like a totally male-dominated field. And now women are finally starting to get back into that computer programming um, and interested field. And it's it's interesting that what got you there was was an ad of this hip, hip lady, you know, working, enjoying life and, and you know, being su successful. But she probably wasn't programming. She was just changing the tape drive. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've known you for a while now, and I think a lot of people are going to be really surprised to hear. And that's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this. This podcast is to show people that we all have a story and every story that we, we've we've done in this first season, nothing is by the book. Everyone has some interesting nuance that's like, and all of those nuances are so against whatever playbook Christians seem to kind of put out there. So on paper, you got pregnant in high school. Um, you had four kids at 21. You had a uh, you had a troubled marriage. You went back to school. You flirted with your boss. You got remarried. I mean, on paper, Miriam. You know what I mean? It's like, and my life is is the same way. It's like if you look at my life on paper, it's like what is what is he doing? And yet through that whole process, I mean, you are one of the most amazing people I know. And all that being said, do you ever have like is it ever do you feel like your your journey has helped you in relating to people or has it been a challenge to be honest about sort of your journey with with people around you? Totally. I, I, I think it's the challenges that make us who we are. It's just kind of like California weather when it's nice all the time. <clears throat> it's just nice all the time. It's not, it's not, we need those challenges to, to uh, hone us into who we are. You can do everything by the book, but frankly, I think it'd be a little boring. <laughs> you need the rain to appreciate the sunshine. Yes. All, this whole first season is interviewing the elders here and most of them, are on their at least their second marriage. And it's so interesting that that and the how um, how that's affected them, but then at the same point, how it's been such uh, like a a reviving process for them as well. You know, as as people feel like they go through a divorce, especially in a, at a Christian organization, that they're they're, they're feeling downcast and, and and outcast and not worthy, but. I, mean, I, I would never look at Miriam and, and think any of this stuff. It, it's such a an amazing journey that you've been on. It's 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 really cool. Now I am so curious to know you are involved in such a cool program, and we have to talk about it. We have to talk about deeper still. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? What you what you emphasize? What your goals are? Let me let me tell you first that. Uh, there's another example of something that uh, a, a Christian wouldn't like to admit, that you committed murder. I took my daughter for two abortions. That's murder. There's just no, get, no getting around it. It's murder. And then that opened the door for her to have two more. My husband, my second husband, this was when she was 19 and, and uh, I had remarried, and um, I felt like he was always very proper. And so the shame thing came up again, like I'm embarrassed to, to say my daughter's pregnant now. And so I never told him. He never knew I took her for two and that she had two more. He found out when she started to get healing for this because she realized what she had done. And she and her husband made a video about you know how it had affected her and how she had gotten freedom with Christ. And that's when my husband found out. So you having got pregnant as a teenager you you felt the weight of all of that your daughter is this your first daughter she's my baby your baby so she's the youngest she's the youngest so your baby your baby daughter then she's still in her teens high teens 19 right she gets pregnant right and then she do you say was it two or four total that she had 
She had four total. Four total abortions. Right. How did your experience as a high schooler getting pregnant and the difficulty of that affect, did that weigh on your your sort of like working with her on, you, you know what I'm it saying? It did, it did, because because I had uh, given up my, uh, you know, going back to college and doing, and, I, and there were a lot of years, even though I managed to do okay with my AA degree and the data processing, which made total sense, I, I missed the, the desire to live on campus. So I... I didn't want her to have to give up her youth as well. So I'm I'm sure that but I'm sure you saw yourself in your daughter at that time. You know, the interesting thing is here, I got pregnant at 16, she got pregnant at 19. I wasn't really going to church, but I did know God. And I had I just kept praying over and over again, just don't let them get pregnant. Well, I didn't give her boundaries, I didn't teach her. I wasn't the mama bear that I would be now. Uh, that I would think that I would be now. Um, I just prayed that it wouldn't happen so soon. I thought, well, the first thing when she told me, she says, oh, at least she didn't do it at 16. She managed to, you know, not get pregnant until 19. And, and was the first option there, did you immediately think abortion or what was the, the thought process there? No, uh, no. Uh, we, were, we were just thinking, well, what are we going to do? Um, and abortion was an option, so we went, I thought we were going to talk to the people about it and, and get some information. Naively, if I'd walked into a pregnancy resource center, which they have now, which they didn't have then, we would have gotten different options and there might have been a different story. Probably would have been, but we walked into an abortion clinic and as a mother, anytime I took my kids to the doctor, I went back to the back with them. And so I said, can I go back with her? And she says, no, just her alone and took her off, and I sat down and um, waited in the waiting room, picked up a magazine and looked and read and wondered, and she's not coming back, is she coming? Should I go up and talk to them? And I was such a wimp that, uh, not the mama bear I'd wanna be, but I, I just sat there and stewed. And um, eventually, it was getting longer and longer, and I says, well, you may as well just relax because it's getting done. So you had no idea this was going to it happen. Was, it wasn't my goal to go in there to have it done. And she says she was relieved because she was. You know, it was it had solved the problem for the moment. And so how how much longer after the first one did she go in for her second abortion? I'm not sure what the time frame was. It was she was a carpenter and she was partying with the guys after work and kind of carousing and she was an amazing young woman. She did she, she went to the union and she would do whatever job it would take. I can remember her coming home and saying they said they had a, she was next in line for a job. She took the job and they says, you know, this is high and heavy. She'd not do fine finish work. She did dirt, uh, oily forms and, you know, concrete slabs and stuff like that. And she'd come home greasy and dirty and drunk. <laughs> All those abortions then leads you to get involved in this program called Deeper Still. And you've mentioned Deeper Still a couple of times. What, explain to us what Deeper Still is and why it is so important to you. We've, we found Deeper Still. We, both of us started working for pregnancy resource centers, and we would go to conferences. We went to a conference in Dallas, and Deeper Still from Tennessee, where it was founded, had a kind of a mini retreat there just to explain what Deeper Still was about. Deeper Still is a weekend retreat. We... we uh, the guests come on Friday afternoon. We have a little bit of teaching and then dinner, and then uh, Friday night they tell their stories. And Saturday uh, we get up and God goes to work. And I have never been involved in anything that is so powerful where we can watch um, the Holy Spirit just dig deep. And we start off the day with... Um, you're forgiven. We show uh, Christ on the cross, and, and it, it doesn't work any other way, I, I believe. It's the forgiveness that they have to begin with. And then um, the great physician shows up, and he heals, and, and uh, we have uh, much relief at the end of the day, and Saturday or Sunday morning, then we have a memorial service for these uh, babies. I wasn't raised in the church. I came to the church later in life. One of the things that 
bothers me if we're being honest here is the way that Christians are recognized in their interaction with, I don't want to say the abortion community. I don't know what that community would be called, but people who have made the decision to have abortions, it, they can, the Christian community can come across as very cold, very judgmental. And you mentioned earlier that abortion, you believe it's murder, which is totally fine. I mean, I think there's a lot of science behind that, but the way that you interact and talk about the way you work with people who have gone through, it's not cold at all. It's not a, so can you tell me a little bit about how, like, how would you explain the Christian interaction or your, at least your ministry's interaction with the abortion community? I mean, you're not out there holding signs at, behind Planned Parenthood telling people that what they just did is, is a terrible thing. You're on the other side. You're, you're looking for people who have been through this process because you know, you, you know something about this personally and you're opening your arms to them. Just because I think that there are people out there that need to know that, um, you can believe that abortion is 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 murder, but that doesn't mean that you are cold or judgmental or anything like that. But you can, I think, you can also believe it's murder, but then still go and do it yourself. I, I think there's, I think you can probably speak to that too. There's tons of Christians that go and have an abortion themselves, and there's great shame for it. Right. Our, our our team is made up of people who have had abortions and people who have not. Who care? desperately for the women and men who are struggling with this because we see uh oh my uh 50 years worth of shame and just like i carry the shame for so many years these folks carry the shame too they may and a lot of them are already in ministry they have they have accepted their forgiveness uh they understand the forgiveness that, but but they haven't laid down the shame or they haven't been able to grieve for that child and that's a huge part of it oftentimes like a miscarriage they haven't grieved for that child either and so how, how many people that, that, that join this program or would call themselves christians are there any people that are are, are just quote unquote not from the church that come and join deeper still on the team no that that oh, the go in the, into the program uh, we, Anybody can come. We we invite anyone to come. It's you don't have to be a Christian to come. Uh, if you're not a Christian, we offer salvation because that's the basis of the forgiveness. How many of the individuals that come into your program that come in through your doors? How many of them are practicing Christians? Because I I would guess that a lot of them probably aren't, or they're operating in a very like hidden way. Actually, I would say most of them are practicing Christians, many of them are in ministry. Hmm. And they realize that uh, some of them, maybe they go to work at a pregnancy resource center and they would require them to have some healing because you don't want to uh, counsel someone and then have something from your past just raise up and, and bother you when you're talking with them. So you have to deal with this, your own history. We can function regardless of what kind of things we have in our past. We do. We just, um, most of us can. But I don't think we function to our full capacity if we're carrying around something that's still, that we're struggling with, whether it's guilt or shame or just even even not being able to say the word abortion. Or or um, one man said, he said, I just dreaded the thought of going to heaven. He was introducing himself to everybody in heaven. And he says, he introduced himself to this girl and she says what's your name he says what's your name and she says i don't know but you're my dad so there's all kinds of ways that this this history can touch people and um if they're able to um just lay it down finally just lay it down and and what we've found is what we teach is you're not only being freed from something you're being freed to something deeper still fallbrook has spawned off um F Spanish ministry. The, the retreat next week is the Inland Empire uh, chapter. Um, there's one working in Huntington Beach. We've had people come from Las Vegas who are interested in starting a chapter. Some gals came out and trained f with us and have a chapter in Tucson. God is freeing up people to be able to be the hands and feet that he needs to heal this massive group of people that are um, carrying this this history having been through it yourself having had a daughter that's been through sort of young pregnancy to a lot of the people out there and i have a lot of friends who have who have gone through with abortions and for them it's very much culturally appropriate it's just you make the decision because it's we do live in a world where if you're a young pregnant female you face a lot more challenges than a young 
unpregnant male. How do you how do you respond to that? How do you what would you say to to that demographic of people to to those out there who abortion was just the best option for them to exist in our very busy American culture? I think Karen could probably answer that one better because, like I said, when she walked out of that uh, after that first abortion, she thought she was relieved. She thought it was over and done and taken care of. But with time, she realized it wasn't. You know, you, you think you're solving a problem for the moment, but long term, not necessarily. Let's just say that there's someone out there listening right now who has had an abortion, who has is thinking about having an abortion. They're, they're on many, whatever the stage is, they're either thinking about it, they've had it, they had it a long time ago, they had it yesterday, and they're listening to what you're saying right now, and they're, they're just trying to connect with it. They, they, they can feel what you're saying, they appreciate that you can understand what they're going through. What would you say to them if they're listening right now? I would say that there are other options beside the abortion. One, obviously parenting is one thing. Uh, and if your partner is willing, that's fine. If not, then you look at the issue of a single mother, which is tough. Um, adoption is another option. That's a huge gift to give someone who doesn't have the ability to have children. That's an unselfish thing to do. I, I'm, I don't know that I'm that good at persuading someone. I just know in my heart that there's people who are willing to help someone, a gal in that kind of a position, even though, even though uh, she may feel like she's solving the problem now. It's, it won't have solved the problem in the future. What kind of problems can arise from, from that? Like you talk about like the future problem. What kind of problems? Regret. Regret is a huge thing. There, there's forgiveness, and I, and I have to say, one of the things that I love to see is someone who is young, who has just gone through an abortion, that they can get healed from that. Because one of the things that also happens is that you, mama is supposed to take care of her baby. Dad is supposed to be the warrior to protect that baby. Dad didn't, and and so they've lost their mother and father mantle. They've lost that mother and father part that God made them to do. That's the way we've been designed to be. And when we lose that, if a young person comes to us and gets this freedom early, they're much better equipped to raise their children than someone. And I, we've seen this struggle. Woman, 80 years old, she finally, she, she carried that shame and regret all her life. But we make some mistakes with our own kids because sometimes... If you've had an abortion, you, um, you're going to make up for it. So I'm going to make sure I don't do anything wrong. I'm going to have the perfect kids. I'm going to really take care of these kids. Um, or you can't connect with them. It's like you had this child. You aborted it. If I didn't love that one, then maybe I'm not going to love this one either. So you just kind of are detached. So there's kind of two different things. You might become detached or you might smother them. So to me... Um, I love it when I see someone young come and just receive the healing and, and, and are able to grieve that and move on and then be really great parents. It makes a difference. Um, Miriam, I think that you're, it's interesting for me to, to hear a story and, and see this vein through the whole thing and it all comes back to motherhood. You're very young, you had this desire to, this desire to connect with your mom and you, it kind of drove you forward. And then you have this theme of your own experience with early motherhood and your daughter's experience with, with motherhood and the battle that was kind of there. And then to see you now spending so much time working with mothers and fathers, this, this whole idea of family. For me, there's a clear thread throughout your whole journey where you have given yourself, it raised you and now you're giving back to it. And I think that that is so cool. I mean, it's really cool to see that happen. Do you see that? Uh, I do, I do, and uh, family has been huge for me. Uh, there were there were times when, uh, especially when I was working, that I was a little selfish. Actually, had I not been so selfish, maybe I would have been more willing to help my daughter rather than have an abortion. Just say, well, we can help you raise this child, which I've done with two of my granddaughters. You know, where was I with my daughter? Well, I think that is a, a good spot to to close this episode i'm sure there's 
going to be many more um, Miriam stories out there. So much wisdom that you have here. So much interesting stories that you can share. And hopefully one day we can have you back and, and dive yes. into the, to the other parts of, of your story. Thank you so much for joining Miriam. You're Thanks, quite Miriam. welcome. Thank you. Oh, oh boy. That was, uh, I just, it, she, I knew she was going to blow us away. I didn't realize there was things in her story that we didn't know. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, thank you for allowing me to kind of hear she, her being so open with, with everything is what's so amazing. Yeah. I love that. She just, Oh yeah. My, my daughter had this experience. I had this experience. I was married this many times. It's like, she's very confident and okay with being authentic, which I think makes love. We need, we need way more authenticity, totally. authenticity. And, and she is such a gracious person with her, her own stories. And it's, it's amazing to see too, how, how introspective she is about, her past and um about how much it's really infected her about how at three years old being pushed down by her mother affected her almost her entire life of wanting approval from her mother yeah she was very self-aware i mean there's no she's definitely i definitely feel like i'm sitting here listening to her thinking like i've i'm i want to learn a lot from her and then and beyond that too if you are listening to this podcast and you've had um if you had an experience with abortion, anything like that, just go look at the work that Miriam and her crew is doing at Deeper Still. It's a great resource, and it's it's just remarkable to see the the powerful things happening there. Yep, could not recommend it enough. Um, we all know there's people in different stages of life having different issues, and if anything on this podcast, any of these episodes you hear, um, you're going through and need some help, reach out to, to us or to, to them and we'll, we'll help you. Um, it's, this podcast is all about getting to know people so that um, you can know that there's other people in your circumstances going through things just like you. 100%. You're not alone. You're not alone. Well, thank you guys. Um, hope you enjoyed that. Hope you learned a lot. Hope you are able to, to get to know Miriam a little bit more. Subscribe, rate, review, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to our Patreon page. Anything you donate there goes straight to this podcast. Help getting you guys some amazing people to to know their stories. Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, support us. Support all of it. We love it. Thanks, guys. The NoCast is produced by Mason Minari with executive producers Corey Bidding and Benny Cantorini at SCF Studios in Fallbrook, California. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the NoCast, please like, subscribe, and share this episode or simply take the time to listen to someone tell their own story. If you'd like to contact us, have any questions, or would like some resources from our episode, please contact us at thenocast at gmail.com. Again, that is thenocast at gmail.com.